listen You can hear their hearts beating Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. On today's program, Manzanar Diverted, When Water Becomes Dust, a powerful brand new film that will see its world premiere on PBS's POV this July 18th. We'll speak with the film's producer, director, as well as, well as one of the lead indigenous activists and the call of action happening this July 17th, remembering the forced removals, uplifting water, and land protectors. And in the second half of today's program, Beyond Missions, the history of the Chumash Nation. All that and more here on American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone In the first segment of today's program, we go to Payonado, or what is known as Owens Valley, California, as we speak with three panelists regarding the brand new documentary, Manzanar Diverted, When Water Becomes Dust. It's a brand new film that shows the intergenerational relationship of the Nuamu or Paiute Nation's peoples, their struggles over land, water, and human rights in relationship to Japanese Americans and Manzanar, the concentration camp, as well as the ongoing struggle to protect the source of life, water. In the first segment of today's program, we speak with Catherine Bancroft, who's a citizen of the Nuumu or Paiute Nation, who's prominently featured in the film, and Kanako, who's the director and producer of the film, as well as Jin-Yu Kim, who's the producer and impact producer of the film. Manzanar Diverted, When Water Becomes Dust, will have its world premiere on PBS's POV this coming July 18th, and corresponding with the film's world premiere will be a day of action happening on July 17th. The day of action is in remembrance of forced removals, uplifting water, and land protectors. I start the interview with the film's director, Anne Kanako, regarding the film's reception amongst film circuits and private screenings throughout Turtle Island. So we've been having really um, great response of the fi- for the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done quite a few um, engagement screenings at, at different universities, and it's been interesting to see like how different audiences engage with the film and sort of what topics kind of come up in showing it. It it was interesting. I I went up to Santa Cruz and I was invited by someone who was 
teaching a class. He's a lit professor, but teaching a class to STEM students. And so he was really interested in the film in terms of how it's, it's able to frame solutions to climate change in a very different way because so often, you know, many times I think with engineers and scientists, it's like, you know, running in the direction of like, well, you know, what are, what are these scientific ways that we can approach these things without really looking at things in a more holistic manner, um, really relying on indigenous knowledge. And so um, he really appreciated how the film, you know, highlighted that and highlighted our responsibility and need to kind of understand histories so that there's, you know, a much larger context for you know, work, work that's being done to, to try to find ways to deal with our situation now. So that was interesting. And then also, like, at UC Santa Barbara had a screening in the um, – talked to David Pello, who is, you know, really working around these ideas of critical um, environmental justice and um, really thinking about, you know, different communities and bringing different communities together communities of color specifically um, around these kinds of environmental justice issues. So, you know, it's all been very, and, uh, and for example, also I just came back last, I guess it was not this past weekend, the weekend before I was up in Minnesota in the Twin Cities and really very moved by in, the interest in the film and, you know, we successfully brought together this, these indigenous groups uh, environmental indigenous group and um, the JCL chapter there, as well as the Minnesota Historic Society, but lots of, um, you know, interesting conversations. And then, of course, Fort Snelling is there, and I didn't, I had forgotten that that's also where the Military Intelligence Service for the Japanese Americans was. That's where they trained, and of course, Fort Snelling is is significant in Dakota history because. Um, that's a sacred site, and and that's where you know so many passed away in a in the concentration camp that was there, and then it's also the site of um, Dred Scott. So, you know, I think all of these different screenings have been a real affirmation of how the film resonates with people in terms of how um, they're able to reflect on these intersecting histories. Kathy, I was wondering with. Um uh, your your thoughts on the response to the film, just given how uh, centered the story is in Payonado and the Nomo people, and um, and so your your uh, your thoughts to the response to the documentary. Yeah, I'm so so entrenched in these issues here that you know usually you're working, but you're always trying to get people aware and involved and. So many times we're just jumping up and down, you know, going, somebody come help us. And it's, I can really tell the difference, the interest. And, and what's really nice is that when, when I do talk to people, I don't have to go through the whole background and why we care and stuff because they have seen the movie or they want to see it. And it's really neat to be able to have those conversations and to have people more aware and and willing, ready to ready to stand up and help us out, and so that's what I really appreciate about about this movie. 
No, I was just going to say, I mean, even just a conversation we were having with our, you know, a team of lawyers that we're working with, one of them was up in Mammoth, and he's like, oh, well, it's great because having watched the film, uh, my whole understanding of the Eastern Sierras and Payahunadu is, you know, I have so much, such a different perspective than I did before because of, of the film. And so that's really heartening to hear that so many people who, you know, casually go there for recreation or other reasons now have a much deeper understanding and are invested in the place. Well, you, you mentioned place and, and so often, um, you know, non-native people are just, uh, the un- uninformed, uh, just think of Owens Valley as a place where, you know, people in LA get their water from without understanding, uh, that, that history and that backstory and that relationality, right. Between, um, down, mm-hmm. down here in Southern California and Pajonado. And, and um, so when we're talking about um, just all the, the different issues in, in the film, you're talking about environmental issues, and so much uh, of that is centered in indigenous struggles. As I was uh, interviewing um, Kyle White uh, recently, and we were talking about, uh, you know, the climate crisis and for indigenous peoples, you know, the, this current, what Americans understand as this climate crisis is just another stage in indigenous people's living histories of facing that climate crisis. And I was wondering, maybe, Kathy, um, if you can speak to that in relationship to the documentary, Manzanar Diverted. Um, yeah, this this climate crisis we're going through is is not going to be any little thing, but it's it's encouraging to know, you know, not just from the oral histories and things I learned about growing up, but working on Patsiata on the dust mitigation project, watching the archaeology, it's only reinforced that how how indigenous people in this valley for thousands of years have adapted to drought. I mean, forty year drought and and just the opposite, you know, huge water. Uh, but um, but and but we've made it through, and how we know how to deal with it, how to prepare, it just encourages and makes you think. It it, it it's it's just reassuring to know that you have those skills, you have that knowledge, you have this to do this, and and how to prevent it, how to make it better, and and uh, and to make it a make it a le- learn from past experiences to make our lives better today. Mm. And. I guess the main thing. So I, I know um, the last time um, we all, we all spoke, um, and and I think at the end of the film, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, since it's been a while since I've seen it, but um, you know one of the in building that second aqueduct and 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 understanding that desertification and uh, subsidence and liquefaction in the Central Valley area. Um, or what people know as the Central Valley, Valley area has become more uh, common, um, was the Department of L.A. County and Water to build a giant solar farm. And, and is that still their intentions, or is there another party involved? Kathy, do you want to speak to that? Um, there is no solar project on the drawing board right now as we speak okay um not not any major projects like that but they're they're always you never know when things are going to pop up again 
Okay. And right now, all they're focused on is getting more water, and they're using climate change as an as an excuse. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that we really need help, and people need to understand is that the solution to climate change isn't taking more water from this valley for them down there. That's completely working against our survival up here. Right. And and that to me, that's what's really scary is that, that they think that we're the solution and, and that that would be our, that we're worth sacrificing. Mm. So um, I don't know. It's, it's a little bit of a strange deal, but hopefully people wake up and we can slow down this process. Yeah, and um, I know there's, um, you know, the big push with um, uh, lithium mining, cobalt mining, some of these rare minerals that are used in and battery productions, and of course, we're seeing. You know, we saw the Biden administration authorize the Defense Production Act, and and that's kind of um, intensifying uh, these proposed uh, mining pits uh, in different places, whether it be in um, uh, Shoshone territories or even uh, just outside of Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. There's plans to uh, create a big mining pit, uh, lithium mining pit to support the manufacturing of electric batteries. And so are what other struggles are connected to protecting Piojonado, just besides the water? What other uh, struggles are connected to that? Mining is a huge struggle right now. And right across, uh, right up on above, I can look out my window. They want to put an open pit cyanide heat leach mine. And... Um, and it's not the only one they're they're trying to push through on the eastern Sierra, which is um, is crazy because lithium and all the other so-called green energy metals are there's a big push for those. There's no reason on earth to mine gold. There's there is plenty of gold mined for any need there is, and yet we still have these companies wanting to come and dig up our mountains and dig up the earth and just destroy the place in a place where there is no water to spare. The water is tied into this. Not only would they polluting our aquifer, but they're draining our, our water dry to do these things. Yet we're still having to fight for it, even though it makes absolutely no sense. We're fighting to protect our land. There's uh, This is uh, K2 Gold is trying to put in a, a gold mine on conglomerate Mesa. You can learn more about that at uh, protectconglomeratemesa.com. That's the one where I live. But just north of here, there's there's several more. They're starting to do exploratory right by Mammoth. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Catherine Bancroft from the Numu or Paiute Nation. She's predominantly featured in this brand new documentary, Manzanar Diverted, When Water Becomes Dust. We're also speaking with Ann Kanako, the film's director and producer, and Jinyu Kim, the film's producer and impact producer. And now back to the interview with Catherine Bancroft speaking. Uh, Hot Springs, uh, north of us with a core drilling company. Um, Bode, there's one going in the Bodie Hills. There's one... Um, over Montgomery Pass, but there's a, a huge lithium mine just going on, uh, starting up in Fish Lake Valley, which is right over the hill from Piazunatis. Wow! And that is supposed to be the second largest lithium mine in in um, 
the world. And then there's several just north of that, clear up, you know, clear up the Thacker Path, which I'm sure you've heard about. Yep. Um, So these lithium mines are huge, and there's a huge push for that. So something needs to be done. There needs to be some kind of compromise met here. Mining is a huge factor in in uh, what we're dealing with now, and it very much involves water. Mm. And, of course, mm-hmm. water is such a central character to Manzanar Diverted, I think. Anne, you were going to add to that? No, I was just, you know, all, hearing about all of the different areas. I mean, I think it just reminds us of how, you know, the struggle doesn't end. It keeps yeah. going. And I feel like it's a struggle everyone everywhere has. But, yeah. Well, and I, I think with the documentary, um, it, it gives that living historical narrative, right, to to the land, and 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 so people can watch the documentary and make those connections to uh, these other uh, struggles, if you will, and mm-hmm. uh, and so sorry, maybe. Um, uh, Jen, I, I haven't weaved you into uh, the interview, but I, I was wondering if you could talk about uh, your role and uh, your experiences so far with the response to Manzanar Diverted. Well, um, you know, we just, just thinking back to how we rolled this film out virtually, mm-hmm. and we were really worried that, you know, our story that is so California-centric was... Mm-hmm how it would do in a virtual world, right? Because of COVID-19, all the festivals were shut down. But we were really surprised that something like resource extraction, incarceration, forced removal, and all of the intersectional qualities of our film, it wasn't just a California story. And sadly, um, sadly it wasn't, right? And it's evergreen too, as Kathy mentioned. Resource extraction just takes on different forms. It goes through different communities, different regional areas, and it is it is something that if we really look deep into it, it's been happening for ages and it will continue if we don't wake up and do something about it. So the universality of this documentary was surprising to us in many ways um, and how it reached so many people, um, you know, people we didn't expect. And even when we did our community screening in Payahunaru, it was really, like, it was amazing just to see the locals and how this film is bringing a platform to all the efforts they've been doing. But it was also important for us as filmmakers to hear that this film needs to be seen by all the Angelinos, right? And we're the ones who are extracting the resource. We're the ones who are voting to, um, to have the power to change something. So just educational awareness and having this, um, this film go from virtual to now, like where we're really putting our efforts into this day of action that we're doing the day before our broadcast. We really want people to um, have an opportunity to tune into our film, not just for our broadcast, but really be lo- attuned to the local initiatives that's going on around them. And I, I mean, we can talk a little bit about the day of action as well right now if, if you want, but, um, but it does segue nicely into it. Um, we were hoping to do a day of action the day before the broadcast. and. We will have uh, our partners, Mia Taro, 18 Million Rising, Pseudo for Solidarity, and Sierra Club, as well as um, some other grassroots organizations. And we'll do a live stream video relay on July 17th, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. PST. 
and everything will be streamed online on our website at www.manzanardiverted.com. And we're basically asking our um, organizational partners to to zoom into um, the live stream from wherever they're located, and they'll be talking about some of these efforts that they're doing. That's tied to the film's theme of incarceration, forced removal, environmental justice, environmental racism. And also with the Day of Action and talking about all these different partners, um, how have they been supportive in uplifting Indigenous people's voices? Because we know uh, for those that will watch the documentary and do get to see that, you know, we understand that the um, Nomu or Paiute people are, are a central part of the story along with Paionado. But all these uh, other organizations that you're working with for this day of action, what's their relationship with the Paiute people? Well, Neotero, of course, is, is an indigenous storytelling organization. Mm-hmm. Um, Tracy Rector, who is our EP, um, you know, works with them, and she's been a real champion of indigenous voices, I think, for, for you know, all of her career, really. And, um, you know, we're, we're definitely reaching out to other organizations where um, they, there's a real hoping be, that different groups across the country will will work with each other to um, raise these issues. Um, for example, we've reached out to the folks in the Twin Cities and and they are working with, a, you know, this local... Tom, are you familiar with Tom LeBlanc? Uh-huh. Um, and his organization to, you know, talk about some of these water issues there. Also, potentially, um, in um, Martha's Vineyard, we had a screening there and and... The Wampanoag there were very, very uh, enthusiastic about how the story, the film's issues around water, really resonated with their own struggles there with the the bay in in Martha's Vineyard. So we're hoping that they might be able to also participate. And um, I've also reached out to some folks up in Buffalo who I met. Uh, also, water issues and um, you know working with the indigenous you know the nations up there as well so we're hoping that there will be a significant representation of these stories across the country um but also um you know asian american voices and other environmental justice issues um i think also sierra club was really interested in using the film to talk about the Delta convergence, so the Delta mm-hmm. tunnel up in the Sacramento Valley, really because it raises similar issues around salmon fishing and and culture um, for the peoples there. So so true. And just out of curiosity, um, any um, willing viewers from the Los Angeles Department or Los Angeles County Department of Water uh, watch the documentary? So the Los Angeles so it's the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power because it's Thank the you. city of Los Angeles. Yep. I don't know who has seen the film. Kathy, have you encountered anyone who's, you know, since you worked side by side with them at Paciata, have you encountered anyone who's seen the film? I have. They're mostly um, not the head guys, uh, <laughs> not the administration and stuff, but I know a lot, uh, not a lot, but several of the, of the everyday workers and stuff have watched it and and uh, they were really impressed with the movie and and it's nothing they don't know that mm. uh, you know because they live it also with us right right so it's real interesting to 
see that and know that they understand even more completely now because of that movie. And, oh, that's great. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, but in terms of sort of the higher ups, you know, I, I don't know what their response has been. I mean, in many times in um, Q and A's, people ask about that, and 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 also ask maybe why there's not more representation of them in the film. But you know, I I feel like I always tell them, well, I feel like their story has been centered. We yeah. don't need yeah. to focus on their story. Well, I'm I'm more curious to see if uh, any any of them have actually watched the film and 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 the film instigates right uh, a shift towards change and um, Mm. you you know because it really you know it's just it's a powerful story it's a powerful film and you know we've talked about that before and and I know um, you know as Jen and, and everyone was mentioning, there's going to be a day of action on July 17th, but there's also going to be a screening. And, um, and I know for filmmakers, um, this is um, extraordinarily important. And I was wondering, Anne, if you can talk about uh, the July 18th uh, POV screening. So, yes, we're really excited because um, POV, American Documentary, is going to be, has included um, Mazinar Diverted into their lineup of films this year. So it's going to be um, part of their their series of films, and it'll be broadcast nationally starting on July 18th. And um, I, I think that locally people will also be able to access the film through online for about a month after the broadcast so that they can watch it um, on their own time if they prefer. So we're really excited because it really um, amplifies this story. And I feel like, you know, through the screenings that we've had, we've really been able to um, get a sense of how, you know, this story does resonate with so many people because water is a common issue. It's, it's, yes, it runs through all of our lives. It's central to all of our lives. And so I think that, um, you know, we're excited to see how audiences uh, react to the film and, and continue to build on the themes of the film in their own communities. So, you know, look on your local... I mean, we're here in Los Angeles, so it'll be broadcast on, on PBS SoCal, I believe. KCET right. um, is one of the carriers. But, you know, for most places across the country i'm sure they will probably be carrying this as well so look out for the film and i think uh the the timing of the broadcast is significant in so many different ways um you know certainly the systemic drought that uh you know we continue to experience but also just the systemic uh heat wave that's covering you know a significant portion of turtle island and just the droughts that are really endemic in a lot of different places. And so I, I think that that is important. And the other is, uh, you know, historically, a lot of indigenous themed documentaries tend to get broadcasted in November. And so I think that's a, a unique uh, divergence, if you will, from PBS. So I, I think there's a lot of, a lot of significance to uh, the timing and, and the broadcasts on, uh, on July 18th. Well- we specifically requested to screen it 
um, as close as possible to July 11th, since okay. that is the, you know, commemorate the forced march from Camp Independence to, right. to Fort Tejon. So, nice. um, and I think that, you know, there are many other, you know, it's July has, you know, July 18th, they would still have been walking at that time. So mm. I feel like there's a lot of significance to thinking about these things in July, just as you said. And so um, so for the July 17th action, for people that are listening uh, to the show, that are listening to the podcast, uh, is there a website that uh, listeners can go to to access uh, this information? Yes, um, it will be on www.manzanardiverted.com. And then uh, yes. a- any uh, final thoughts as we wrap up? Kathy? I just want to thank you for, for keeping us in mind and giving us this chance to uh, tell our stories. You've always been there for us, Larry. Thank you. And and all the hard work that Ann and Jen have put into this, I'm always mm-hmm. amazed. And But uh, it's it's really showing that People are people are more aware and really starting to care, and that's the whole point. So we appreciate it greatly. Yeah, and Jen, all of that. Thank you, Larry, and thank you, Kathy, for always doing the work. And that concludes the first part of today's program here on American Indian Airwaves. We were speaking with Catherine Bancroft from the Nuamu or Paiute Nation from the traditional territories of Paiohunado or Owens Valley in California. She is a central figure to this brand new documentary, Manzanar Diverted, When Water Becomes Dust, which will have its world premiere broadcast on PBS's POV this coming July 18th of 2022. We were also speaking with Ann Kanako, the film's director and producer, as well as Jin Yu Kim, the film's producer and impact producer. For more information regarding the July 17th action and the documentary, Manzanar Diverted, you can visit the website manzanardiverted.com. And that concludes the first segment of today's program here on American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back.
must all become a nation. Keep the land prosperous. Rise above, above all the... The song Seventh Generations by Kupa Aina here on American Indian Airwaves. In the final segment of today's program, we continue within the politically defined borders of the state of California with our ongoing series titled Beyond Missions, the History of the Chumash Nation with Dr. John M. Anderson. For over 50 years, Dr. John M. Anderson has been researching into and writing on Chumash history and culture since the early 1970s at the University of California, Santa Barbara. His research includes the Tahone Reservation in California and the treaty uh, with the Castaic, Tihon, etc. of 1851 between several California indigenous nations whose lands range from presently what is known as Santa Maria to Long Polk to Santa Barbara, Ventura, Los Angeles, and Long Beach and stretching eastwardly into the Mojave Desert to a point between Barstow and Las Vegas. Marcus Lopez of the Chumash Nation and Executive Director of American Indian Airwaves starts the interview with Dr. John M. Anderson in our ongoing series titled Beyond Missions, the History of the Chumash Nation. John, I want to get to um, the marginalizing the Chumash Indians. You have some real dynamic um, comments and information for people that are just barely understanding the Chumashlandia or the in Chumash country. But yet, talk about a little bit about the Chumash and the Akashwa Reservation. What's the relation between the two? What are they? Okay. The best writing done on that topic was done by Dr. Greg Schaff when he was a graduate student at UCSB. I met Greg early on. I was working at the University of California as administrator in instructional development and got interested in what Greg was doing, and we moved on from there. He, his Kashwa writing, it's called Sinangitas, that's the Spanish name of the community, that was the last... It was actually a reservation. It was stolen by the Hope, the Indian agent. And this was you know, commonly done in California. The whole system worked against the Indians, and people would get themselves appointed an Indian agent because they got land and they got free labor and became rich by, by using their contacts. Usually it was in Washington uh, in the federal government, but sometimes it was through Sacramento. And... The Kashwa people were so abused, and basically Greg uh, documents how the city of Santa Barbara joined in in the despoilment of this tiny little reservation, and the federal government looked the other way and allowed it to happen, allied with the railroads. The railroads came in and roughed them up as well. It's It's a tragedy. There's no question about it. And mostly it's marginalized. That's what I mean by this book, uh, Marginalizing the Chumash Indians. We, we'll just, we don't want to look to the past. We want to look to the future. Let's not look back there. There's nothing to see back there. Well, I'm trying to uh, document that there's a whole lot to see and there's responsibility to be uh, dealt with. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't have any Indian blood. I'm 
you know, Norwegian and German and Irish and whatnot. But I believe that we, white people, I use that word as a general term for European settlers who came to America, uh, have damaged themselves by not dealing with the tragedy that they brought about in uh, taking away the native people's land and their resources. And this is why I'm an advocate of returning some land. And if, if that cannot be done, then we need to embrace the Chumash with open arms to help them rebuild their culture and, and their ties to each other. So much was done that was unjust. Thank you, John, for that. I, I, know, I, I know Greg Shaft, and my dad was a good friend of him, and uh, different elders around, they respected him, and also the, the information that he provides, and I think you, you have him uh, and some of your books are describing um, that whole process, which we don't have time to go over all your multitude of books that talk about that. But on this particular book, you talk about the marginalization and the overdue reassessment of the tragic history of the Spanish, Mexican, and the American Holocaust. And that this marginalization, even the state of California, even with now, even today, even now, because you talk about within the book, which is kind of dated, of the national park system, they're trying to establish a national park within Gaviota area, and that fell through. But yet, even you mentioned Paul Palmier, a dear friend of mine, which is now he's passed, talks about the, the those pueblos, Haka, Kashwa, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, the, and the Twin Cities up there in Gaviota about making a home site for the Chumash. But that that fell through. So we realize that, but you talk about also this Munoz report, and I, I want to get into it because not ignoring all the other aspects of it, but you went into this marginalizing because this is an example of how even Santa Barbara City, County, and all the different cities up and down the coast, they marginalize Native people. They marginalize or take one or two people, and they don't, uh, you know, they say, well, that's all that's left and not expanding and describing what you describe. That's why the rich information you provide is, uh, gives us a more of a, of a approach, a different approach. But you talked about, and especially this Munoz report of 1981, commissioned by the Army Corps of Engineers for the Vandenberg Air Force Base located around Lompoc, just outside of Lompoc. Mm -hmm. And you talked about, and it talks about, the, the relationship with the multitude of Chumash groups and a division perpetuated by the system. Why don't you give us an overview of that Munoz report that you wrote about? Well, I wrote this in 1999, and her report came out in 81, so there's lots of time for this to, her recommendations to mature and for there to be remedial uh, programs that could begin to fix this lack of consultation with the non-reservation Chumash. I wrote this commentary uh, as a uh, internet site and got a lot of feedback from it, uh, both from uh, non-reservation Chumash, not so much from the reservation. My contacts were more um, intellectual in the sense of academics who were studying that area. And Munoz came out with uh, recommendations that uh, the uh, uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base needed to expand its consultation and to include 
the many, many uh, Chumash groups, especially at that time when there was a fragmentation, uh, people were uh, working in smaller groups. We had gone through the, um, the occupation of Point Conception, which impacted Vandenberg, uh, among other things that I write about it. I've written a couple of articles in national magazines uh, about the spaceport that's being developed there. And I advocated that, uh, as Munoz did, that um, many of the uh, other Chumash should be consulted about that spaceport and about the uh, military programs on that base. Uh, little came of it. Um, it's, uh, you know, uh, decades later, and we see that uh, SpaceX and Elon Musk are making huge amounts of profits off of uh, the spaceport and one in Texas, and yet very little is being done to share the, the wealth or, or even to um, consult with the non-reservation people. I think that uh, Santianez, uh, the, the tribal council there, uh, is, it should be consulted, and it's, it's working on these issues of protecting uh, sacred sites, getting access for too much people, but I think the, the voice needs to be much broader, and I think it should include uh, at least all of the Western Chumash. On your book, The Marginalizing Book, you talk about that, this report on Dr. Jean Munoz submitted the ethnographic mm -hmm. study in the Chumash Indians of 1981. It was an extensive report to the uh, commission by the Army Corps of Engineers impartial fulfillment for the federal and state uh, regulations, the regs, they yep. just protecting the Native American cultural resources in Vanderbilt Air Force Base. I remember listening to people, and people are dealing with cultural re uh, resources, as they say, and that is, it was a lot of dynamics, and I just put it that way, between two mass individuals and families and whatnot, for for the um, the government, specifically the Air Force, of ignoring Dr. Munoz's work, number one. But secondly, she concludes that the Munoz called for the expansion in the political process governing heritage sites on Vandenberg. And she concluded that the Vandenberg Air Force Base exacerbated the, the so-called factionalization that went on during that time, and I dare to say that continues to this very day. Um, do you see any repercussions because of that? Because you, the whole book talks about how the media, and that's why we're, we're spending so much time on that, media, literature, newspapers, um, federal, federal reports and whatnot, marginalizing the Chumash and don't bring out something like what the Munoz report talked about. And you mentioned this, we would go back in the book and read it. But you're saying that they even exacerbated even to this very mm -hmm. day, you know, um, would you not say, uh, w w what would be your comments on that? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, her report should have uh, had a, a stronger impact, but there's a lot of money uh, pouring into the military at this time in our history, and the uh, marginalized people uh, around the base and, and who's, you know, uh, territory included the base. It's 98,000 acres. Uh, when it was set up, they couldn't find one acre to give to the local uh, Cahis Muas who were on the edge of this extinction. 
Uh, some of them could have come back from the Santa Inez Reservation, for example, and occupied a small homeland and, and preserved their language and, and culture there, but it didn't happen. It's still not happening today when Elon Musk, for example, in SpaceX, he brags he's the richest man in the world, but I don't see him giving monies to uh, facilitate some kind of uh, remediation. It, it just moves on. And we want to remind listeners, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Dr. John M. Anderson as part of our ongoing series, Beyond Missions, The History of the Chumash Nation. And now back to the interview. You know, in my 1999, that's a long time ago. That's, a, you know, almost a quarter of a century. In retrospect, I said that little progress has been made to raise the landless Chumash groups up to the status of San Ynez. Federal recognition of the land base is still denied to non-reservation Chumash. And you know, this has taken so many years uh, of dialogue with Chumash people, uh, contemporary Chumash people, who have come to the conclusion that the federal government's hostility uh, to uh, you know, federal recognition and therefore possible land base is so strong that they are uh, not embracing the effort, the tremendous cost and effort for federal recognition, and instead are focusing on their daily lives and sharing life together as a people. And I think this is just absolutely vital to, to the future of, of California. Well, John, you know, I was taken aback by, within this book, um, we're talking about marginalizing the Chumash people in Southern California, that you had a section of it about planting the Gaviota Coast National Seashore. And I was part of that. And you said, and I'll read it for that, about the Barrio Chumash Council. Now it's the Barrio Chumash Tribal Council. But he said, Paul Parmier, a member of the Barrio Council, wrote me confirming his advocacy of a homeland for the Santa Barbara Chumash on, Cal on California's Gaviota Coast. The Barrio Council will be meeting soon, and seashore planning process will be on the agenda. Discussions will include the need for a general meeting of non-reservation Chumash to discuss this matter collectively. And this is, when you said that, you know, with we were talking about the council when he was alive, Paul Palmier, a good friend of mine. He talks about this dynamics. He talks about establishing a homeland. He talks about establishing a center, a home, agricultural, thrivability, all this kind of stuff within the Gaviota area because that's where his family is from. And at the same time, having room for other Chumash families so they can enjoy the area, number one, was talking about reassert and reconfirm about the history, dynamics of the rich history, but also about challenging the status quo in that um, this, like we just said in this book, if we go on decades from now marginalizing the Chumash, you know, which my good friend Paul Palmer passed away and many other elders that passed away, like my dad and other people, that we see that this marginalizing has its impact. And you conclude that this is a very important issue, uh, the remaining two mass of all the different villages and all the different sites 
Uh, what do you conclude from the book itself? Well, I knew Paul Palmier very well. I had the greatest respect for him. Um, he and I uh, worked uh, together to um, uh, try to uh, persuade various agencies and uh, to uh, come up with monies for that land base. Uh, Paul was did most of it, but I, you know, I was involved in discussions with him. We we both went, for example, to um, uh, McQui with uh, Dos Pueblos Canyon. And we talked to the landowners there, for example, who owned uh, the remnants of a, um, a greenhouse that was once very extensive. And it's on the site of um, the Dos Pueblos uh, town site. And that's where Paul's family was from. And so he was home. He, he spoke eloquently to the woman who was a relative of the owners, and we asked her to go to the owners and consider um, giving part of that land uh, to the Chumash people. And uh, it ended up in the hands, because of the family's preference, of the University of California at Santa Barbara. And I don't know, uh, it's been a long time since Paul and I went there. We were just so disappointed when we learned that that was the choice they made. Uh, but it takes this kind of effort, even though we were discouraged, uh, Paul never gave up. He was wonderful that way, and he just threw himself back into public hearings and federal hearings uh, to try to find allies within the bureaucracy, within academia, with uh, Santa Barbara City, the county, uh, I, I just greatly admired him. In fact, uh, um, John, we went to the council, went to the the United Nations through the Je Seventh Generation Fund in order to make a uh, case the protection of the sacred site for the Hunkok or Point Conception. And yeah. uh, we were part of a massive amount of people that expressed concern for the protection of that site, along with other friends and other Chumash elders now that are part of the traditionalists that protected that precious site. But that being said, we miss him very much. But that this marginalizing book, the the uh, the margins of history, what so if you would summarize that book and uh, to to say to our listeners what would you say is so important about that well we you know look what's happening in america today there's uh, a resurgence of uh right-wing uh politicians uh, the uh people are you know, being shot in the news this morning uh black people by a white man in this case uh I only cite that because I, you know, this goes on and on, but it happened today or yesterday. Um, the violence uh, continues. Uh, I, I think that part of it is that white America is having a very difficult time uh, accepting that uh, minorities, uh, non-white minorities, will eventually be a majority in America. And I, I, you know, address that issue you know, 30 years ago and said we need to 
build bridges and and understanding and, and respect for one another. But and this is the the bottom line for what you're asking me, Marcus. I see that we're still marginalizing so many of the people who do not have power, and that includes the landless Chumash. Uh, and and I think that we're making white. I say we. I'm a white man. Uh, we're making a mistake. Uh, we're damaging our own selves, our own culture, by not repairing this damage that we did. Uh, the Mexicans did it. The Mexican government, the Spanish government did it. Uh, the Russians did it when they attacked the uh, Chumash Islanders and killed many of them to uh, make profits with the uh, sea otter furs, took those furs to China and brought back uh, arsenic so they could continue to steal the gold of Mexican and California Indians. We have a lot of changes we need to make within our hearts. Well, thank you, Ms. Dr. John M. Anderson. We're speaking Chief about Marco. his past, uh, past book, Marginalizing the Chumash People in Southern California. We have a, how can people contact you? How can people get this, these books? Well, um, they're available. My wife and I decided that we would uh, make them available um, for free on the Internet. A uh, person can read them on the Internet or even download them, and they're at johnandersonlibrary.org. Um, and there's a, uh, a place in, in that um, library to uh, contact me, and it's down at the bottom. I'll tell you very quickly that the uh, organization of the library is uh, by a tribal group, so if you're interested in the Chumash, all you have to do is click on the Chumash icon. It says Chumash, and you'll see my Chumash writings. But there's also um, the uh, Uto-Aztecians. Uh, my wife grew up in Yucaipa and got to know some of the people of the Banning area, the Morongo. And so uh, I have a very large uh, metaphysical book on the Moringayam. Uh, I also write about the Kalispell of uh, North Idaho, the Lake Kalispell. So there's that material available. And I have writings on the Achimaui of uh, Northern uh, California. Uh, it's a, a study of their mythology, which intrigued me. So I studied it for two years in the context of uh, Chumash mythology. Not that they were in direct contact, but I was very interested in how one could learn from this uh, general pattern of uh, metaphysics and interpret, uh, you know, uh, speculatively, of course, uh, a, a different culture that you know I'm not so uh, aware of. But my brother lives in the area, and that's how I got uh, to know uh, about the Achimaui metaphysics. So that's an overview of the library. There's there's more there, and uh, I, I, of course there's my Tahone research. That's another big section, uh, uh, but I, it's not filled out yet. And uh, the books are written, but they just need to be typed in. That takes time. The moment of silence is over. <laughs> Thank you. 
And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. That was Dr. John M. Anderson speaking on Beyond Missions, the history of the Chumash Nation. For previous interviews with Dr. John M. Anderson, you can visit our SoundCloud website at soundcloud backslash burnt swamp. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guests, Catherine Bancroft and Kanako. Jin Yoon Kim and Dr. John M. Anderson. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studios of Burnt Swamp Studios in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. And for the innocent, you can't justify why your freedom manifests on their graves. Blood never comes clean from the guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains Silence is over.